Welcome to Lyme Time. I'm Allie from the Tick Chicks. We are all more than Lyme disease and chronic illness, and together we stand with you to overcome and rise. I'll bring you closer to the experts in cutting edge treatments and even a few unexpected ways of healing. I'll ask the questions you want answers to regarding Lyme disease and successful ways of getting you closer to 100%. We are in this together and will not be defined by Lyme. Today's guest is Dr. Rana Mafi. Dr. Mafi is the chief neurologist at Case Integrative Health, working with Dr. Kelly to treat complex neurological disorders, including tick-borne disease, daily. Dr. Mafi is a former assistant clinical professor in neurology at University of Illinois. Essentially, she's a Lyme literate neurologist. Dr. Malfi is truly an amazing human working with complex patients to solve symptoms and improve their lives. She has studied the causes, effects, and treatments of neurological disease extensively and lectures nationally on this and other topics. Dr. Malfi received her education at the University of Iowa, the University of Illinois, and UCLA. Dr. Mafi is on the American Board of Integrative and Holistic Medicine, the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine, the American Academy of Medical Acupuncture, the American College of Nutrition, and the American Headache Society Institute for Functional Medicine. Welcome to Lyme Time, Dr. Mafi. And as you know, my listeners uh, struggle with Lyme disease and other various types of chronic illness um, that that just sort of come with that umbrella of Lyme disease. Um, as you know, there are many symptoms of Lyme which vary from person to person, some of them neurological and some not. Can you tell us what defines neurological Lyme? Well, um, I'll start out by saying that um, as a traditionally trained neurologist, I saw very little Lyme in my practice. Um, as you know, as a Western trained neurologist, we were always taught that, you know, to check Lyme disease, you know, if somebody presents with something like multiple sclerosis or Bell's palsy or other kinds of acute neurological presentations. Um, however, as you and a lot of your audience members know, Lyme disease is very difficult to diagnose and is is a controversial topic among more traditionally trained physicians, particularly neurologists. So uh, for, for me, I really gained an understanding, more of an understanding of um, Lyme disease and neurological manifestations of Lyme disease kind of after I started expanding my, um, my paradigm and the lens from which I was kind of approaching patients with, particularly using functional and, in, and integrative medicine. And I could tell you that um, from my clinical experience that I have seen patients with either a history of Lyme disease or happen to get a diagnosis of Lyme disease with all kinds of neurological conditions and diagnoses. So ranging from um, central nervous system issues in the brain and spinal cord to peripheral nervous system issues in the, you know, in the nerves and muscles. So, so to get back to him, though I'm being circular here, but to get back to your question of what defines neurological Lyme, um, you know, Lyme has a predisposition to um, attack 
nervous system tissue, nerves and brain tissue. So really um, the, the symptoms and presentations can really kind of span, span a, a wide range. So patients can present, you know, similar, similarly to um, uh, an acute MS exacerbation, which has a wide variety of symptoms, whether that's based in um, brain disease or spinal cord disease. Um, they can have more peripheral nervous system symptoms. They can have, you know, an attack of a single nerve, like for example, the facial nerve, like Bell's palsy, um, or other kind of cranial nerves. We have 12 cranial nerves, you know, that, um, that we can get more into, but, um, you know, you can have acute attacks of those cranial nerves. Um, you can, I've seen patients with, uh, you know, neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease and other dementias that have either had a history of Lyme disease clinically or by, you know, labs or, um, have just through workup, um, we happen to find it, you know, as part of a piece of the puzzle. So it's not necessarily the cause of their Parkinson's disease or their Alzheimer's disease, but it certainly um, seems to be a player. So, um, you, know, you know, as you and your listeners know, Lyme disease tends to present either musculoskeletal or, you know, neurological, or some people have both. And, you know, the neurological, um, you know, Lyme patients tend to be a little more difficult to treat. Mm. Okay. It's so, it's so fascinating. You know, you, you, you mention single nerves and nerves, and uh, sometimes I just find that those symptoms are the hardest to calm down once they're activated like that. Um, would you consider tinnitus or tinnitus as part of that? Or is that a different, is, does that not, is that not considered neurological? Tinnitus certainly is considered neurological. Um, oftentimes people can have tinnitus from, um, and it can go along with other things like hearing loss, um, you know, vertigo, because um, oftentimes it manifests in a dysfunction of the eighth cranial nerve, which controls hearing and balance. Um, so certainly tinnitus is certainly considered a neurological symptom. And, yes. and what about trigeminal neuralgia? Is that ever a, a, a symptom of the Lyme disease? So um, again, uh, stemming from my traditional training, it was not something that we were taught to look for, for trigeminal neuralgia, for Lyme, for, for Bell's palsy. It was something that we would oftentimes check and usually never find mm -hmm. um, through traditional testing. Um, but trigeminal neuralgia is not traditionally taught as, you know, to think in the differential, you know, think of Lyme in the differential. However, as I said, you know, um, just through my clinical experience over the last, you know, several years after having changed my paradigm, um, I, I think that there definitely is a possibility that patients suffering with trigeminal neuralgia, um, there, there may be, uh, not, not every case, but there may be 
a possibility that, you know, Lyme or tick-borne illness might be a, um, a cause or a player. Mm -hmm. And, and I know that you made the transition from traditional medicine over to the functional medicine, um, realm. And, and so I'm, and you just said that you're seeing more connection between neurological issues and actually expanding your lens and in, in accepting that, Hey, maybe everything that I was taught in school isn't so cut and dry. And I experienced this with my own neurologist. I mean, I basically had a bag for a Lyme disease test. Um, so now that you're in the integrative and functional medicine category, so to speak, are you seeing an increase in your Lyme disease patients over the years? Or would you say that that's just a, a matter of you um, practicing in functional medicine now and in integrative medicine? Well, uh, number one, I certainly am seeing quite a bit more of it because I'm looking for it more and I'm looking for it in ways, um, you know, using other not so traditional tests that uh, I wouldn't have used in the past. So, um, you know, I think definitely based just, you know, given, given the nature of the way that I practice now, I think for sure I'm seeing more, more of it. And what would you suggest if I came to you as a new Lyme patient and I was exhibiting signs of Lyme disease, what types of tests would you perform on me to confirm the Lyme? Uh, well, it, number one, it kind of depends individually um, on what your presentation is, what your symptoms are. But if you're just focusing on the Lyme, um, you know, I always start with, you know, traditional um, Western blot testing through standard labs. And I'm always really delighted when when I find the answer there, sure. because I don't have to move on to other more specialized tests, because as you know, um, they can be very costly and they are also controversial and not as well accepted by even infectious disease doctors. So um, if I find it through traditional, you know, Western blot testing, then, um, you know, like I said, I'm delighted and I, mm -hmm. and I get a good start there. Um, however, you know, I've learned over the years that um, with Lyme can come some co-infections as well. So rarely do I just stop there. So I may, I may offer patients more specialized testing, um, you know, to look for different strains of Lyme. Um, if the Lyme testing was negative, you know, through traditional testing, and I really highly suspect it based on their clinical presentation. You know, it's another reason to kind of go for these, you know, more expanded tests. So, um, so yeah, so I've been using a lot more of these, you know, um, not so traditional tests. Got it. And so um, for, for everyone out there who's, who doesn't want to, waste a lot of money and time, you would suggest possibly just starting out with a Western blot. And then from there, if we're still not satisfied, then moving on to more of an Igenix type test. Yes. So Igenix is kind of considered one of the gold standard labs. 
for, you know, looking at expanded Lyme and co-infection testing can be quite costly for patients. Um, yeah. I think my last one was $2,300, <laughs> but we tested for a lot of co-infections. And as you know, they're, they're discovering more and more and more strains of bacteria as we speak. So I think it's, it, it is important. I was, I was, I'm constantly in areas where maybe Lyme disease isn't prevalent, but other tick-borne illnesses are. So sure. that's why I did that. But I'm, I'm praying for a day doctor that, that those tests are just one of the few that you immediately can give somebody when they come in with neurological symptoms. And I'm, when I say you, I mean the traditional Western medical world. <laughs> um, right. So what, um, what are some of the most effective forms of treatment for neurological Lyme? And I know that we have to speak in generalities here, but, but what do you, what do you find that can be most helpful for neurological Lyme? Uh, well, Lyme in general, um, you know, it's not all about killing the bug. It's, it's about kind of taking care of the, the kind of a disruption um, in immune status that it causes and clearing out toxins that they leave in their wake. Um, so rebalancing the immune system as well as, you know, targeting, um, eradicating, you know, the pathogens are, are kind of the goal. So, you know, for the first part, for eradicating, eradicating the pathogens, you know, antibiotics, um, uh, are often used. I often use antibiotics, usually a combination of antibiotics because of the different life, uh, life the different stages in the life cycle of Lyme. Um, so oftentimes it's, you know, three, three antibiotics, oral antibiotics. I have not been in the practice of, of using IV antibiotics, but some people have been using IV antibiotics, especially for things like neurological Lyme. Mm -hmm. um, and also certain, not as accepted by the traditional medical world, but um, as an alternative to antibiotics for those who don't tolerate or don't do as well, um, you know, there are different, you know, herb combinations that are offered to patients, um, you know, with either musculoskeletal or neurological Lyme. Um, and then, you know, um, there are other forms of, you know, treatments that are um, geared towards, you know, treating, you know, the kind of the eradication aspect as well as the immune rebalancing and um, sort of the detox aspect, improving detoxification. So certain forms of IV therapies that we offer in our practice, um, um, some Lyme literate doctors will use IV ozone, things like IV um, uh, NAD, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. Um, That's what I do, by the way. <laughs> I really, I really love that one. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting. So you said you might combine up to three antibiotics. Would that be at one time simultaneously or do you rotate them? It's typically simultaneously. Some of the, some of the antibiotics are pulsed because of 
Um, certain, certain stages of the life cycle of Lyme, like the cyst form are very, very stubborn and difficult to treat and can evade treatment. Uh, so by pulsing treatments, um, you know, treating uh, for a few days and then taking a break and treating for a few days. So, so some of the antibiotics are continuous, some are pulsed. And in terms of um, length of treatment, it can vary it can vary from patient to patient. Um, if somebody has neurological Lyme and it's, um, you know, manifesting in terms of a neuro neurodegenerative condition, um, typically treatments tend to be longer because those are harder things to treat. Um, you know, the earlier, the earlier you catch something like Lyme or other tick-borne infections, better off and the shorter the treatment, more likely the shorter the treatment. And what would you say would be your comfort zone in terms of a maximum duration of antibiotic treatment before you just went ahead and took the patient off antibiotics and focused more on holistic type treatments? Um, well, I don't, I don't know that I've ever had in my mind a cutoff like that. And it, being on antibiotics for a long period of time can, is a very, um, uh, challenging treatment on the body, you know, like it's, yeah. you are disrupting your microbiome, which we've discovered, you know, in the last several decades, how important the microbiome is. So, um, a lot of things you have to take into account there, but like I said, it's very individual. And if somebody is doing very, very well with antibiotics and tends to, and once you stop them, um, seems to be taking a step back, you know, I'm not going to just stop because I have a cutoff in my mind. So it, it's very variable from patient to patient. And yeah, I'm kind of asking because there are patients out there that have been on for years mm -hmm. and frustrated or not really sure if they're experiencing symptoms of the Herxheimer reaction or just actually, you know, continuing to feel, um, the effects of the disease and, and, you know, I really feel for those patients and I'm not sure if there is a, so to speak, a cutoff, a, a point in which, uh, some doctors who are Lyme literate would then just remove the patient off antibiotics. And I, again, I know it varies from patient to patient, but I mean, when I hear years, <laughs> you know, I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, that, that there is a little bit of a discomfort there. So, um, I, I, I have not yet had a patient myself that I've had on antibiotics for years and years. Um, so I, I would try to, you know, shy away from continuing on for right. years and years, um, and reaching for some of these other alternatives, you know, like the IV therapies or peptide therapies mm -hmm. or, you know, continuing herbs, which are, you know, also antimicrobial and do have some, you know, untoward effects on the microbiome, but in my mind, they're a little gentler, um, than antibiotics. So, yes, yes. And, um, and then I was speaking with somebody who was asking me some questions the other day, and they are currently on currently concurrently on nine antibiotics wow. and it, and I, said, you know, I'm going to have to ask an expert about that if that's unusual or not. 
that's that's a bit unusual <laughs> in my opinion but um um yeah because i i get concerned that if you're if you're sort of throwing so much mm-hmm. to try to kill the bug so to speak you're really just bringing on a whole other host of symptoms that I always tell people just try to be patient, take one thing at a time. So you can know, you know, and I mean, one thing at a time could be up to three antibiotics or four, but, but it does concern me that they're, they're experiencing some uh, reaction from such an overload of antibiotics that perhaps it's surpassing the, the symptoms of the Lyme disease itself. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would agree with you on that. Um, I think at a certain point, you do have to kind of reevaluate if you're getting to that point of being on that many antibiotics um, and kind of uh, considering your, your other options, definitely. I, I think that's where the line is be- between the, the traditional Western way of thinking and then the integrative uh, way of thinking is that, you know, just... Western tends to focus on killing this bacteria and so many people, and I included in the beginning of my journey, I was just wanting to get this thing out of my body and kill it. And, and then I could somehow move on with my life. And then eventually I just came around to more integrative practices so that I could, I could just live with, with Lyme disease. And actually that's, that's exactly the point when I came into remission because I was able to stop the madness of trying to kill the bug. Um, and on that note, you know, a lot of people want to know, am I stuck with this for the rest of my life? Have, has anybody truly cured or found a cure or been healed a thousand percent to, to where there's no, no longer is, are they reading Lyme disease or, or the strains in their blood work? Is that, is that an unrealistic expectation or what should our expectations be with neurological Lyme? Um, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't have the, the best scientific answer for it, unfortunately. Uh, but I can tell you that yeah, most certainly if patients are treated appropriately with, you know, therapies that, you know, eradicate the Lyme as well as therapies that focus on um, rebalancing your immune status and improving your detoxification, which are really important um, over time that for sure people can go into remission. There's no question about that. Um, you know, as I said, the, the neurological manifestations are, um, harder to treat and the further down you are. So if somebody has pretty advanced Parkinson's disease, there's already been a lot of damage there. So we may, um, we may really get the Lyme under control and eradicate that. Um, but they're left still with, you know, significant dysfunction because of degeneration over time. I so, see. And would their blood work actually reflect zero levels of Lyme? Because I've heard different things. I've heard some doctors say, look, you'll, once you've had Lyme in your system, your numbers will kind of always read that there's some level of, of Lyme bacteria in your, even if, even if you've healed. Right. So I've never had yet a case where, um, 
patients' labs are completely like, like, (laughs) yeah. So I've never had that. So oftentimes, you know, when your Western blot, you know, shows things that are positive, um, just because they remain positive doesn't necessarily mean that you still have active Lyme. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question completely, yeah, but I, I think, I think it's helpful to know the truth about that. You know, that, that you can feel be feeling good and go in for blood work and there it is again, you know, and I think, I think psychologically we need to understand that it may always read in your body. It may be sort of a dormant type situation, but you can consider yourself healed from it. Or at least in remission, you know, if, if nothing else. So that helps me a lot. And I I think that'll help a lot of people out there that are fixated on the numbers. Mm -hmm. And, and, and does neurological Lyme always invade the brain or can you, can you have, yeah, I guess that's what I'm asking. You know, can, does it always involve the brain? Is there ever a case where you can have neurological symptoms, but it hasn't gotten to the brain yet or affected the brain? Um, you know, again, I can't speak on what's published in the literature on that, but, uh, from my clinical experience, most oftentimes if people have neurological Lyme, there is some brain involvement more often than not. Um, you know, that you can have peripheral manifestations of Lyme, you know, with neuropathy and things like that. Uh, so it, I personally, um, I, I would say from my experience, the, the majority of my patients that have uh, Lyme with a neurological diagnosis condition, most of them have had more central nervous system sorts of issues. So brain and spinal cord and things like that. And can some people develop neurological Lyme immediately after a, a vector bite or, or is it something that the longer the bacteria sits, the more likely you are down the line to develop neurological Lyme? So you can certainly, it certainly can cause acute symptoms. You know, if you have a recent exposure to Lyme, um, it can definitely cause acute symptoms, but the longer you've had it and not known about it, um, the more opportunity and chance it has to embed itself in, ner- in nervous tissue. Um, so, and, uh, and can, can another, can a subsequent bite trigger neurological symptoms, even if it doesn't, even if that bite doesn't contain the, the bacteria, the same bacteria you had the first time? In other words, if I, if I got bit a subsequent time by a different tick, obviously, um, and it triggers neurological symptoms, is that, is that fairly common? Uh, it's, it's very conceivable for sure that, you know, if you have already been diagnosed with Lyme, dealt with Lyme and then get bit by a tick with. Lyme again, perhaps a different strain that for sure it could instigate, you know, kind of more symptomatology for sure. 
Yeah. I think there are a lot of people that are outdoorsy and that's their lifestyle. And of course, those, those are people that are affected by Lyme disease. They're very active people and they're constantly in conditions um, where they might be exposed again to tick-borne illness. And I want to go back a little bit and discuss Bell's palsy because that's, this seems to be um, one of the symptoms that seems to be relatively common. I I'm, I'm saying relatively, but it is a, it is a, uh, it is not, it's a, <laughs> I'm going to have to edit this part. Um, but Bell's palsy tends to be a somewhat of a common symptom, maybe not highly occurring, but it is a symptom. And I'm often asked about Bell's palsy treatment and can it be reversed? Uh, what is, what are your thoughts about the Bell's palsy? So, um, for, for your listeners that aren't as familiar with Bell's palsy, um, Bell's palsy is basically, um, like an acute inflammation of one of your cranial nerves, the seventh cranial nerve that mainly controls facial movement. Um, there are some other functions like it partially controls part of your taste. It does kind of provide some input to um, hearing as well. So when somebody presents with Bell's palsy, they, they'll typically have acute paralysis of one side of their face. Very rarely will it affect both sides at the same time, but you'll have you know a drooping of your mouth and an inability to completely close the eye on that, on that side. Um, so typical presentations are, like I said, acute. So they come out of nowhere. You might wake up with it or something like that. Um, most often time Bell's palsy gets better and you regain function of that, of, of the nerve with some exceptions. Some people are left with some residual weakness or some misfiring of nerves, um, you know, where something called synkinesis happens where when you try to smile, you actually end up closing your eye on that side. Mm. Um, you can have vision issues because you're unable to close the eye. So you can, you know, because of, because of that, you can, there's a risk of losing vision on that side. Um, so, so typically people get better over, I would say a month or so. Oftentimes people are treated with a course of steroids like oral prednisone because of the nature of it being an inflammation. There's something causing inflammation. And, you know, as a, you know, in my traditional training, we're taught that viruses can cause it. So a lot of the herpes family of viruses, so herpes simplex or Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus or the virus that causes chicken pox can be underneath it. Um, however, Lyme is always something that we were taught to check for. And as I said before, Typically, we would usually not find it <laughs> through traditional testing. Um, so, so yeah, so the, the, it, it's usually a, a self-remitting thing. Oftentimes, patients are given steroids with it. Sometimes they're given an antiviral as well because of the possibility of a virus being at play, like a herpes virus. Um, and I might have forgotten your exact original question about Bell's palsy. Well, I just, I wanted to, there, there are people out there that that's their main symptom. I mean, that's the thing that concerns them the most because it is visible. 
And Mm -hmm. so they're wondering, and I'm sure that their doctors put them on the steroids or a possible antiviral, but I'm wondering if there are, is this something that can be helped with acupuncture or, um, anything else, or is it mostly just a waiting game and to be on these medications until it Um, subsides? Yeah, it's most often a waiting game. Um, More often than not, steroids are on board uh, for maybe a week or two. Um, And acupuncture for sure can possibly be considered. It might be beneficial for some. Mm-hmm. Um, so as an adjunct to those other things, um, and you know, if somebody does obviously get a diagnosis of Lyme disease at the same time as a diagnosis of Bell's palsy, then, then we would pursue treating Lyme disease mm-hmm. as well. And so we want to, I want to also go back to some other related neurological conditions and I know that they, in, in people that have passed away with Alzheimer's and dementia, they're finding spirochetes um, related to Lyme. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard that there are some preventative therapies that can exercise the brain to prevent Alzheimer's and dementia. So I'm just curious to know, can, do you believe that, that Lyme disease is an active cause of Alzheimer's and dementia? And is there anything that people could do with Lyme disease to be a preventative measure to stop it progressing to that level? So uh, I'm I'm currently training with uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen uh, and his RECODE protocol. So he's a neurologist who's dedicated his life to research and aging and dementia. And he, his recode protocol is, um, uh, it's, it's a basically a, a functional medicine approach to treating Alzheimer's and dementia in general. And um, I can tell you that there, there are, there is evidence in the literature, as you alluded to, um, of, you know, autopsy brains of Alzheimer's patients showing these spirochetes, showing these bacteria um, you know, showing Lyme disease. Um, there, the way that, you know, the training is structured through Dr. Bredesen's protocol is he teaches that there are actually 36 different potential causes that contribute to dementia. So, and then he further breaks it down to you know, six subtypes of dementia. And one of the subtypes is actually what he calls toxic dementia. And in that, under that umbrella would be included things like Lyme or other tick-borne infections and mold, you know, and things like that. So um, some patients with dementia certainly may have something like Lyme or other tick-borne infections as a contributor for dementia. I wouldn't go so far out to say that Lyme is the cause of their dementia, but it certainly is a player in, in some patients with dementia. So if, if somebody has had a history of 
you know, Bell's palsy or some other, you know, thing that tipped off a diagnosis of Lyme disease, I think it is very important to try to adequately address it and treat it because down the line, this can be something that fuels the fire for things like Alzheimer's disease. Interesting. Yep. I find it interesting that a lot of these diseases that we're discussing, Alzheimer's, um, dementia, MS, lupus, even there are such a high percentage of people with Lyme disease that also have those. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and we're not saying it's Lyme is the cause of anything. I just feel like, you know, we never know what the beginning and the middle and the end is for any of these diseases. Um, but I was told once by a physician that, um, you know, you know, you've got to take control of your health right now. I was in a hugely acute state and, 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 and things were becoming layered on and on and on. And, and, and I was told, you know, you, what, you don't want this to develop into an MS or lupus. And I, I never considered once that this could keep going into, <laughs> into worse and worse and worse conditions. And that was like a real awakening for me. And, and do you concur with that philosophy that these, these other conditions can develop as a, you know, hand in hand with Lyme? Certainly. Yes. So, um, as you know, as the, the bacteria embeds into your nervous tissue, um, if nothing's done about it, then it's, um, causing a lot of disruption, killing actual killing of neurons, disrupting synapses, synapse connections between the neurons, releasing toxins that are toxic to the neurons. Um, so for sure, the longer it's there and unaddressed and untreated, the, there is a possibility of, you know, getting to one of these diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And in addition to, we discussed treatments like NAD and peptides and things like that. Do you also prescribe, um, and herbs, of course, do you also prescribe supplements on top of that? People have questions about supplements all the time. Mm -hmm. I personally take them. I'll probably take them the rest of my life just as a preventative, but, uh, what do you, what are your thoughts about supplements? Yes. So, uh, as a general rule, I would say, you know, I don't only see Lyme. I see other neurological conditions. And because I practice functional medicine. I also see general functional medicine as well. And, um, rarely do I have a patient where I say, I don't even have one supplement to recommend for you. So, so for sure, I think supplements do have a place. They are supplemental. They are kind of like a window dressing. So the foundation really is, you know, diet, mitigate stress properly, sleep enough, get enough movement and exercise, you know, those really are the foundations, but, um, supplements for sure have a place. I can tell you, I take, you know, a number of supplements myself, um, as a, as a baseline, you know, as I kind of said, rarely do I ever say you don't need a supplement. I'm almost always recommending fish oil and vitamin D at the least for patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I think supplements have a huge place, but, you know, as you know, the supplement industry is very unregulated. And so patients have to be very careful with products that they're choosing. And if 
uh, it's best to work with a provider who's really um, savvy and knows, you know, what, what companies are vetted and what products are vetted. I agree with that. Um, don't go rushing out to buy them off the internet. Just take your advice of your doctor. Um, but, but that's great. And, um, what would you say is on the horizon for treating neurological conditions in the future? What can we look forward to? Is there anything that excites you about possible ways to treat Lyme disease in the future? So I would say primarily what excites me the most is just through this training that I've been doing through Dr. Bredesen and his recode protocol. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of good data that protocols like this really, really work and that you can prevent and reverse things like cognitive decline. And I think you can carry that over into other sorts of progressive neurological conditions. So for example, if um, somebody has a strong family history of Parkinson's disease or MS and wants to really take control of their health and be preventative. I'm a big, you know, um, proponent of pro what I call preventative neurology. So really getting at it and optimizing things so that you don't end up down that road, because once you do progress further and further as a Parkinson's patient or an ALS patient or an Alzheimer's patient, the harder it is to treat these things for sure. Um, of course, you know, there's always you know, Western medical treatments, pharmaceuticals that are in the pipeline for these things as well, which can be exciting as well. You know, they've developed a lot more treatments for MS over the last decade. So that's exciting. But I would say for me, what excites me the most is, you know, this aspect of prevention and preventative neurology. And what, what does that look like? I mean, can you give us a couple of specific examples of, of preventing cognitive cognitive disabilities? Yeah. So, you know, one, uh, one kind of, uh, topic that I'm excited about is something that Dr. Bredesen calls, which is cognoscopy. He kind mm -hmm. of, coined, he coined that term it's nice. kind of, instead of your colonoscopy. In addition to your colonoscopy, you get your cognoscopy. So this is, he, you know, he recommends that everybody over the age of 40, do a cognoscopy, which is essentially breaks down to um, doing kind of a, as a functional doctor knows, you know, doing a, a wide range of lab assessments to look at metabolic status, inflammation markers, nutrients, hormones, things like that. Um, so that's one aspect. And then another aspect is actually doing cognitive assessments. So doing, you know, quick, maybe 15 minute, you know, in the clinic sort of cognitive assessments on patients or, you know, even more extensive cognitive assessments if they're necessary. Um, and then obviously a neurological exam as well. And if patients labs look great and their cognitive assessments look great, then they're, they're probably good to go. But if there are red flags and there are things that are, you know, like highlighted, meaning, you know, if you're showing signs of inflammation or you're showing signs of insulin resistance or metabolic imbalance and things like that, 
that really needs to get addressed because those are huge, huge things that drive things like cognitive decline and dementia. Sure. And, and then if, if you saw signs of that, what would he, what would, what would be good, um, for us out here, even just staying on top of our cognitive health? Um, are there any at home treatments or anything you could recommend that would be helpful to prevention? So, uh, as I was alluding to before, you know, the lifestyle piece is so foundational. So diet is huge. So if anybody is showing signs of cognitive decline, like mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's, um, the, the diet is really, really key. And because of, because of how, um, insulin resistance plays a role and, you know, sugar in general can be very toxic, the kind of the, the foundations of the diet are kind of aligned with more of a ketogenic diet approach. So a very high fat, um, you know, high, you know, non-starchy vegetable, you know, good quality protein diet with very minimal carbs can, can really, patients can get a lot of mileage just out of that. A lot of patients report a lot of mental clarity when they initiate on a keto diet. Oh, They're not, yeah. Energy. Mm -hmm. They're not the easiest of diets to follow. But if you are, you know, heading towards dementia or mild cognitive decline, it's a serious thing to consider. And, you know, these diets are huge changes in your lifestyle, but they can make a huge difference too. So diet is important. Um, and also um, managing stress and, and getting enough sleep and making sure you're sleeping, uh, your sleep quality is good, making sure you're getting enough oxygen when you sleep. So these things are also possibly assessed during a cognoscopy. Um, and exercise, exercise has so much research um, in terms of how it increases what's called brain derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for your brain, which you know enhances you know, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis make the formation of new neurons and connections. So, um, the very, very important to get enough exercise, you know, cause you really, really are doing your brain a favor when you exercise. Um, and then, um, things like brain training. So exercising your brain, so stimulating your brain. So whether it's ongoing learning, whether it's, you know, taking or auditing a course or learning a new language or learning an instrument or doing, you know, um, online, you know, things that are an online platform that are intended for brain training. So brain games, things like that. One of the ones that's um, kind of promoted by Dr. Bradison is uh, what's called brain HQ by posit science. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, they've got the most data. They've done a lot of research and shown that, you know, brain training really works. So, um, you know, there are other copycats, you know, like luminosity and things like that, but, um, but brain HQ, um, has the most data behind it. Well, that's exciting. Um, it's an exciting field to be in. I, I think, you know, especially with, um, what's going on now currently and in the pandemic. And I, I just feel like uh, we're going to learn a lot through that research. Mm -hmm. And I personally feel that even though Lyme disease is not a virus, it acts as though 
once it's in your body, it acts as though it's a virus because it can go to multiple, um, you know, tissues and muscles and bones and, and just kind of wreak havoc all over your body. So it doesn't really act in my opinion, like much of a bacteria at all. Mm -hmm. It just gets in there too deep. So, you know, I think that this is all so exciting and, and we have a lot to hopefully look forward to and, and raise awareness to get the, the funding and the money toward going to, um, some preventative measures in the future. Um, are there any last thoughts that you have for our listeners who might be really, really struggling right now? Um, they might be in areas where they aren't able to get to Lyme literate doctors easily, or, um, and they're, they're just dealing with neurological issues. I, I in one p- part of my journey, I did experience some dementia type experiences that would come and go in waves. It didn't stick with me, but I mean, I would be in a place like a grocery store and not remember why I knew where I was, but I didn't quite understand why I was there that type of a moment. And it was really, really scary. And as you know, so many people are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed, I should say for years. So what can you, what can you offer as last thoughts for those people out there? Yeah, well, I have to say that um, there have been some silver linings with the pandemic and with COVID, and I've been able to connect with patients from all over the the country because patients have been able to find me and they've been able to visit with me through, you know, virtual visiting. So I think, you know, the fact that we can do that, I think it's opened up, you know, integrative and functional medicine in general to a lot of people. So um, I, I would just encourage people to not lose hope and to, you know, continue working with whoever their providers are, you know, that they're working with, you know, in their, um, you know, current location to kind of work with them and to um, hopefully get them to somehow meet eye to eye. And if not, then, you know, I think meeting with somebody virtually, I think is, is a, is a great alternative is a great option. I think it is too. And where can they find you for telemedicine? So I am currently working at Case Integrative Health um, in Chicago. So it's um, caseintegrativehealth.com. Um, uh, you can find information on the website about, you know, how to contact us. And, um, there's, we have, you know, other information. Uh, I work with Dr. Casey Kelly, who is, um, you know, known internationally as a Lyme literate doctor. So, uh, we have a lot of resources on our website for, for Lyme patients. Well, I appreciate your time and, and your insights and just all of the brilliant um, light that you bring to this confusing disease, uh, Dr. Moffey. And I, I just wanna thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope that you'll be back to visit us sometime in the near future. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, talk to you soon.